I'm Ece Özdemiroğlu. I'm Sabina Apet. And I'm Jill Duggan. And this is Join the Dots. I'm an environmental economist. Sabina is an environmental scientist. Jill is an expert in climate and energy policy. We've spent our careers giving advice about the environment, and we know choices are never straightforward. Here in each show, we explore the issues surrounding an everyday choice to help you decide what's best for your health, wallet, and our planet. In today's episode, we want to focus on what goes down the drain that's not talked about very much, and that's personal care products like toiletries, shampoo, makeup, and also medicines. Surely, as they are designed to be used in and on our bodies, they're safe to use, right? Or are they? And when things go down the drain, have we really flushed them out of our lives? To explore these issues, joining us today from Pretoria, South Africa, is Dr. Eunice Ubamba-Jazva. Hello, Eunice. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Thank you for having me. And thank you for the minor introduction in terms of pronouncing my name very well. I'm really impressed by that. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm Eunice Ubamba-Jazva, like you said. My background is actually microbiology, so I am a medical microbiologist. But um, currently, I work with the Water Research Commission and... My portfolio deals with a lot of emerging contaminants that we're going to discuss today, and not just in terms of the popular ones that everybody knows about, like the microplastics, but the more unknown ones, the insidious ones that people don't necessarily associate with the fact that they can make our water quality worse. You know, even simple things like our wipes that we're using all the time, what are the implications for that? My research portfolio deals with a lot of these things, and I've been with the WRC now for about three years. And it's been a really enjoyable experience in terms of growing my expertise in um, contaminant work, especially from the chemical point of view, coming from a classic microbiology environment. Thanks, Eunice. Let's delve into what we're going to address today. Sabina. So we're talking about a few categories of chemicals here. Firstly, there are a number of chemicals of concern in our personal care products, the toiletries we use every day. That's makeup, skin creams and lotions, hair care and such like. Many of the chemicals in these can be harmful to you and when they are rinsed down the drain to the environment. Then there are the pharmaceuticals we ingest, put on our skin, inhale, or if there are extras, sometimes flush down the toilet. These can end up in our waterways, impacting wildlife, and may not be removed in sewage treatment plants, returning to us in our water. A third issue is the chemicals in cleaning products, from bleach to phosphates, which are also damaging downstream. So many of the chemicals in toiletries make them have the characteristics we really like when we buy these products. They make them creamy, foamy, colored, scented, or they work as preservatives to make them last longer. However, countless products do this using ingredients that are also toxic to us. And when flushed down the drain, they're also toxic to ecosystems accumulating in water, sediment, and tissues. Similarly, many of the medications we use are rinsed off our skin or excreted and also end up in the drains, causing effects which include Direct toxicity, that means causing death, reproductive or genetic issues in organisms, 
endocrine disruption, that means it affects their hormone systems, and changes in communities, including microbial communities. One of these effects is the development of antimicrobial resistance, which we'll discuss a little bit later. So examples include things that you might begin to be hearing about because some products are stating that they don't have them, like parabens, which are commonly used as preservatives or as an unlisted fragrance. But these can easily penetrate the skin, and there's evidence that they interfere with hormone function. They can mimic estrogen, and they've been detected in human breast cancer tissue. And it also may react with UV light to increase skin aging. Pharmaceuticals that we're talking about are things like NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, such as ibuprofen, which are generally have low toxicity, but can affect marine organisms and have been found toxic to some vertebrates. Mood-enhancing drugs are found in our water and are seen to affect fish. Hormones, such as our birth control pill, end up downstream and affect both humans and plants and animals. And antibiotics, antivirals, and even illicit drugs are found in our water systems. What does this mean? So everything from the cosmetics we use, the medicines we take, things we use to wash with, all of these Mm. have implications. But what are these implications? Okay. I think it's it's difficult to understand sometimes that everything that we we use on our bodies <laughs> ends up in our water and it comes back in a cyclical way. Depending on what happens, you can actually end up drinking what you've just applied on your body, literally. And it's because the systems that we have in our environment do not necessarily have the ability to naturally filter them out. So basically, people have to really become very conscious about the fact that it's not about just human health safety, but it's also about environmental safety. And when we talk about the effects, then what in terms of the environment, it's you're looking at your animal life, especially marine life, but even our freshwater life, which people don't talk about a lot. So the river that runs right next to you, you know, something that you've taken, you've ingested a medicine that you had. Um, lotion that you've applied, makeup that you've used, if it contains contaminants that cannot be removed by treatment systems, it could end up in the river next to you. And that could have implications for your aquatic life in there. Ultimately, also, if it's not removed by our drinking water treatment works, it comes back to us and we drink it in minute quantities. So we might not see the health effects now, but if we keep on having this exposure over time, we then might see in generations to come possible health effects um, from from, um, ingestion of those types of products in our water. So Eunice, what are some examples of these products or chemicals that you're seeing as emerging concerns in your experience? So I think for me, I would like to give a South African example just to bring in a bit of a difference from what we talk about globally. So I want to specifically talk about the example of antiretroviral drugs in South Africa, which we use for the treatment of um, HIV AIDS here. So South Africa, it's actually one of the countries where there's a very high burden of HIV AIDS. And unfortunately, we've had to respond to that by rolling out the accessibility of HIV drugs to nearly every corner of the country. 
So because of that, we've started asking the question, what is the impact of that in our environment? Because unfortunately, not everybody disposes of their ARV drugs in a correct manner. And that's what actually sparked that interest. We wanted to see, okay, even if somebody takes ARVs, it doesn't get broken down completely. So you still have some metabolites. You still have the parent um, drug, meaning the original drug in our waterways. What is the ultimate effect of that on aquatic life and our environment and on us as individuals who will drink that water again? So we looked at um, a three-year study where we did sampling across different wastewater treatment works, across different water resource bodies, so our rivers, our dams, reservoirs of different kinds, even on, um, borehole water, groundwater as well, to see where ARV drugs are being found in our water system. And what we found is that the levels of ARV are very minute, but what we needed now was to do exposure studies. So if we expose ARV contaminated water to a snail, for instance, does it have an effect when it's developing its eggs? Does it have an effect on fish as they're developing? And those kinds of experiments and that kind of research can ultimately guide us to see what the effect will be on human life. So we're using that as an example to say if fish is exposed to ARV water for the next two years and we then ingest that fish, what is the likelihood that we're going to then have ARV effects in our body? So those are the kinds of research we're trying to do in making emerging contaminant um, research very applicable and also making it understandable to our society. Because there are a lot of other contaminants that we talk about here and we will talk about, which may not really touch our society in South Africa. But once we start talking about ARVs, immediately everybody sits up, everybody listens, and then you can link that to water quality deterioration based on what people are taking in in terms of their medication. So with that research, we were just able to tell people that you have to dispose of medication properly because ultimately it can end up in your drinking water. So have you found what impacts ARVs have on fish or snails, for example, or are you in the middle of this research? So the preliminary studies we've done is basically we found that it does have effect on snails, so your amphibians, also on fish. We're now doing some more ecotox studies. So in terms of ecotoxicology, we're talking about cellular levels. So we're looking at yeast cells, for instance. We're also looking at more higher organisms. There are different levels of fish that we look at. So higher levels of fish, which would be fish that we are likely to ingest, what happens when they are exposed to ARVs, what happens to their eggs, what happens to their reproduction, Mm -hmm. because the reproduction is usually your first line where things start to change. Then you know that, okay, no, Mm -hmm. this contaminant probably has an effect on this organism. Let's talk a little bit about fate of ARVs and other pharmaceuticals that you might look at. You've talked about natural breakdown Mm -hmm. of compounds. How do chemicals that naturally disappear break down in the environment? In terms of the chemical components, usually when we take in chemicals, we would have broken down into a certain level. But reactions that occur in the environment, you know, based on the salts that we have in the environment, based on the size of the contaminant we're looking at, then it could go through a groundwater sort of filtration process as well. Those kinds of natural processes then are able to break down the compound further. But in some instances, the compound might not ever disappear. It's just that we don't have the ability to detect that metabolite. 
And just to segue into that, with emerging contaminants and our pharmaceuticals, it's also difficult to measure them all the time because we just don't have the instrumentation right now to measure them, or you don't have the control for that specific metabolite or compound you're looking for. So there's always the idea that the original compound, so let's say your ibuprofen, your ibuprofen is gone, but then the metabolites, the breakdown products of your ibuprofen might still be there. Although in minute quantities, but we are not necessarily able to pick them up. So when you use the term metabolite, that suggests that the compound is being broken down by organisms. Yes, exactly. And it's part of a metabolic process, process yes. just for our listeners. Yeah. <laughs> so that's biodegradation. Mm. Now, that brings to mind the other day I was washing my hair mm. and I was using a fairly natural product. Mm that proudly boasted that it was 98% biodegradable. And I buy big bottles. So that's 2% of stuff that's going down the drain that is not biodegradable. And I, I just imagined all the thousands and thousands of people, even just here, using that one product. What happens to that huge mass of chemicals? It depends on how your wastewater treatment work functions. Because unfortunately... A lot of our wastewater treatment works were not designed to deal with a lot of the contaminants that we have right now and at the levels that we have right now. Those are the two issues. But in your wastewater treatment works, you have a biological process, you have a chemical process, and then you have a physical process. So with some of the chemicals, none of those processes are effective in completely removing them. So at the end of the day, you will have some that goes into your water resource body, wherever it is that you're letting your effluent go into and like you mentioned, Sabine, you think about yourself, but there's so many people doing the same thing. You know, there's so many people. And that's why it's now of concern. That's why we say emerging contaminants, because some of these contaminants have been there, but they are now at such levels that evidence is showing that they could have a health effect on our aquatic life and on us as well. So we're all nodding, but uh, Jill and I, not being scientists, looking more and more puzzled <laughs> about trying to get our heads around the whole system and go on, Jill. Well, I'm kind of wondering whose responsibility it is and mm. why we're allowing manufacturers to manufacture things that we can't treat. Mm. When it comes to compounds, when it comes to drugs, when it comes to um, cosmetics, we have manufacturers. And what are those manufacturers doing? Who's holding them accountable to say that you need to start doing life cycle assessments of your product right from the beginning? And we're saying to manufacturers, what is your green process? Basically, is it actually green in that it's not going to have an effect in the environment? It's okay to say it's not going to have an effect on human health. Maybe it's not going to have an effect on our animals. That's what One Health does. One Health looks at human health, animal health, but environmental health is something that's not catered for at all. Ultimately, we are all linked. Mm. We are taking our water from the environment. In South Africa, we are looking at that. And that's the nice thing about the Water Research Commission, actually. We have a big emphasis on stakeholder engagement. So once research like this has been produced, if it's not being manufactured in South Africa, then obviously that's something that we give to the Department of Trade and Industry. And we say, look, there should be a policy around this. For products that are being made in the country, we tell manufacturers that this is ultimately what happens to your product. It's ending up in our waterways. It's clogging our waterways. What is your responsibility? And just to make things interesting, Jill, um, we, we had this discussion actually around pampers clogging our waterways because in South Africa, that's something that we're really dealing with. 
you find pampers everywhere. You mean nappies? Yes, exactly. Because in some areas, the proper disposal mechanisms are not there, you know. So we are trying to get nappy producers to come on board to say this is where your product is ending up. Even though the personal responsibility is there, you as the manufacturer, what is your stake? You know, because this is actually your product and it really reflects badly on you as a manufacturer. Can I take a step back? So there are lots of bits of chemicals that come together in the manufacturing process to produce one of these toiletries or or medicines. Mm -hmm. And each one of these input chemicals might have different environmental and human risks. And when they come together, those risks might multiply or they might balance each other. Mm -hmm. And I think there are chemical regulations that try and regulate how those chemicals are put together in the production process so that the production process doesn't have high detrimental impact on the workers. And then they're packaged, transport to shops. We buy them. You take the pill or you put it on your skin and... Our bodies are ecosystems in some ways, aren't they? Mm. So we metabolize some of them and the bits that we can't metabolize, we excrete. Yes. So it goes out in our pee, usually. If the cream was on our hands, we wash our hands and it goes into the water. Mm -hmm. And then when it goes to the environment, it sits in the environment. So that's why you're interested in the fish and the snails and what happens, because they're not naturally used to cleaning it. No. Or it goes to a water treatment plant. So we're very good at treating the big stuff in the water. And I think you, you mentioned the physical treatment, right? Is that where the sewage treatment plants with round pools, yes. they make the wastewater weight so that the hard stuff Can, yeah, falls down stuff. to the floor. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's yes. a very simple yes, process, exactly. right? Very simple, yes. Or there's chemical treatment yes. where we put other chemicals in the water mm-hmm. so that those chemicals can take away the chemicals that we don't want. Yeah. And then there's biological processes where my knowledge goes a bit hazy. <laughs> then we must be putting some biological things yes, in the exactly. wastewater. Bacteria. <laughs> Bear with me, scientists, yes. please. <laughs> and then once we once the treated water meets the treated water regulatory standards, it's released mm-hmm. to the environment. But what you're saying is that we have developed the technologies to create the chemicals to solve purposes like pain relief, Mm -hmm. but we haven't necessarily created the technology to treat those chemicals. So the two ends of that life cycle are not developed at same speed, perhaps because you can sell the chemicals, but you don't really. (laughs) You pay with public money on the treatment. Jill might have things to say about that. Is that the long way of putting the big picture? (laughs) Yes. And AJ, I would also like to bring in the fact that because you touched on the life cycle, the end life cycle. And Mm. I think with the emerging contaminants, maybe what we also need to to stress is the fact that there are no regulatory levels for some of them. Mm. So we don't know what is okay. Is it okay to let into our water body ibuprofen levels of two milligrams per liter? We don't we don't know that. A lot of the water quality guidelines we have are for your known, your legacy contaminants. They are not for these new ones. So that also is a big issue. So even if a regulator says, we know that if this emerging contaminant is a problem, they don't necessarily know what level to put it at. So a manufacturer might say, well, okay, my effluent should contain what level of ibuprofen? What level of ARV? Those are the kinds of research questions that we are still trying to answer Mm. so that it can then go into policy. And then anybody knows that, okay, if I want to let water into a body, then it has to be at this level for a specific contaminant. Yeah. Yeah. 
I remember talking about regulators having to play catch up in the air fresheners episode as well. Mm. Our guest Thea Sletten was saying you can only regulate something once you realize it's a problem. Exactly. And sometimes <laughs> that takes time. Yeah. So Eunice, as I understand the One Health concept, mm. which you flagged to us quite interestingly. It's this idea that our personal health and the health of the planet are intimately linked, and you have to look at these as interconnected yes. systems. Mm. And one of the big effects of some of these downstream contaminants is antimicrobial resistance. Would you like to tell us a little about this? Yeah, I think the EMR antimicrobial resistance has brought to the front this whole One Health idea. So I always like to tell people that it's not that we weren't doing One Health, but we hadn't put a tagline around it. And most importantly, a lot of the focus was human health is catered for, animal health, but then environmental health, no, not so much. So somebody knows that I'm taking this medicine it's going to help me feel better. It's likely not going to give me any adverse reactions or I'm giving my dog this antibiotic. I have two dogs, by the way, so I know <laughs> quite a bit of also the drugs that dogs are taking. My poodle recently had an episode with diarrhea. So, you know, so I'm giving him this antibiotic and <laughs> he's fine now, you know. And if he poops, I take his poop. But then I don't know whether the antibiotic in there has really broken down to a level where it's not going to cause a problem. And basically, we have all these organisms that are now resistant to the medicine that we take to treat ourselves, to make ourselves better. The reason why AMR is such a big issue is because the same, and I'll use um, antibiotics as an example, when you are using antibiotics as a human, it's the same type of drug that the animal industry is using. And for a long time, we were not bothered with what the animal industry was doing. So they were using drugs that we are taking to treat very infectious diseases for their production. And when they flush out, let's say, your cattle lot, some of the manure runs down and it ends up in our water body. So this includes not only the organisms, but it includes residual antibiotics as well. And you've basically generated this soup of organisms sitting in your water body, as well as antibiotics, which also leads to resistance over time. Mm. So a lot of people thought antibiotics is a problem. Yes, it is a problem. We need to stop antibiotics. But a lot of these chemicals that we also apply and we put in our products also lead to antibiotic resistance. I think and people don't think about it that way. So as bacteria get into contact with these chemicals, they also start changing and becoming resistant. Why should the average person care that microbes in a stream are resistant to antibiotics? Why does that matter to us? So when we look at microbiology, and it's amazing because obviously it's the subject that I like, but I'm just trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to contain my excitement. But basically, organisms are related. So let's take an example of E. coli. There is the animal form of E. coli, there's the human form of E. coli, there's environmental E. coli. But changes can happen in E. coli, which would then lead to infection in human beings. And that's why we are very worried about AMR, because just because you find a resistant E. coli in the water body, it doesn't mean that further down the line, that resistant E. coli cannot give you an infection. 
microorganisms are changing all the time. So over time, you might find that you've developed an E. coli that is resistant to an antibiotic, and then it can also cause infection in a human being. Mm. When you get that infection with that particular E. coli, you go to the hospital, there will be no antibiotic to treat that infection. So our solution today becomes part of a problem in the future. Exactly. Um, yes. that, that vicious cycle is created. Mm. Sabina, yes. yes. So one of the issues is that bacteria are very generous in how they share their mm-hmm. genetic material, yes. right? Yes. So once one species develops a capability, that can be swapped back and forth yes. between different groups. Yes. And also, we don't know the timing. It could happen very quickly. It could happen very slowly. Mm. I think to add on to that is the fact that the rate of antibiotic development is very slow. I think the last big development of antibiotics was in the 1970s. So we don't have the antibiotics to then treat these resistant organisms. You mean humans are slower than bacteria? (laughs) Yes, yes. Some people need to hear this. Some people need to hear (laughs) that humans are not top of every chain. No, they're not. And they're like all in control of everything (laughs) in the world. No, no. Jill, we haven't heard from you for a while. One of the things coming through to me is that firstly, as we develop products, we don't necessarily know how to treat them. And it's only when they become a problem that we really Mm -hmm. take them seriously and develop either the regulations or the ways in which we need to treat them. Mm -hmm. There is a tendency amongst human beings generally to imagine that if something is sold in a reputable store, that it's fine. And clearly the answer is, well, maybe it's not. I think that's a very key point when it comes to our consumer habits. You have to take time now. You have to read. You have to find out as much as you can. I think you can't play ignorant anymore. And for me, that's really been a decision that I've had to make. And it takes time, but you become you become used to it. You, you actually ask yourself, if I'm buying something, I want this to last, you know. Do I really need that softening product? I'm washing my face. Do I need my face to be soft as well? Or do I really just need my face to be clean? You know, so it challenges you to really think about how you how you mm-hmm. consume, you know, and when it comes to like your clothing, washing stuff all the time. Why is it really dirty or is it just the fact that, oh, I've worn it once, so it must be dirty because when you just wash one item, you are washing stuff that probably is going to release some dye into the water. You're using laundry product. All of these things, the chemicals that are associated with all of that stuff, you know, you start to see that it's a lot. It's a lot. And if you think about all the number of households who are doing the same thing. So it's a it's a cause for concern and it, it forces you to pause and think about what you do. This is a theme we've come to a number of times. All the ingredients that are in products. We do love yes. the luxuriant, <laughs> foamy, pre- <laughs> entire economy is built on making us consume more and new and different products. Yes, I like the term you use, luxurious. You know, these terms are the ones usually associated with things that might not necessarily be good because they are extra add-ons. So if I take a shower and I'm clean, what is the luxurious feel? What is it that makes the stuff luxurious? And that might be a chemical that could, in the long run, have such a horrible effect on the environment and is it worth that or is there a real natural product that we can have that could generate that type of feeling but it doesn't have any added on chemicals so there's a lot of work to do and it's easier to just develop chemicals to meet these different demands and desires that we have Mm -hmm. you know rather than look at natural based products we're always keen to point out that 
these issues are not limited to the United Kingdom where we live. Growing up in Turkey where water shortages were a big problem, just having a wash was the luxury itself. <laughs> you didn't need the chemicals. It's important not to be guilty about having no, having no. a shampoo and stuff, but actually no. really being grateful about what we have. Like having water in running in your tap in your yes. house is the luxury itself. Yeah. And that also it has its own environmental impacts yes. as well. So yes. we should change that exactly. opportunity. Yeah, I think so too. So that's very interesting, Eunice, that you bring it back to our shopping habits mm. and relearning how to shop. And we'll probably end the episode on what we can do as individuals. But before then, we had a couple of other environment-related questions that we wanted to cover with you. Jill, you had one. Well, one of the things I'd heard about was fish changing sex because of some of these chemicals. Is that something that's actually happening? And what do we know about it? What's causing it? Hmm. The fish changing sex thing is a nice hook (laughs) because I think it's been profiled a lot in the media and it's in relation to endocrine disrupting compounds, basically. So I think what is really interesting at that kind of trophic level is that it gives you a visual representation of what a chemical can do. So not just in terms of, oh, the genes have changed because with microbial communities, you might not really visualize it, although they are the lowest trophic level where you will see changes happening immediately. So we talk about our microorganisms having no diversity now because of being exposed to contaminants. Your next level will be your fish. And with your fish, you do see that. So that's why people are very um, worried, because if we can see that in our fish, then what are the implications for us? Because we do also have an endocrinal system. You know, we don't know whether that would also then have that same effect on our system. And like I mentioned earlier, this type of research takes years. Chronic exposure, you know, over a long period of time is when we might start seeing these effects and then start working backwards. It's really important to try and look at some of the research we're trying to do is like cohort studies. So maybe follow a group of women who are pregnant, who unfortunately live in an environment where they may be exposed to some kind of chemical or pollutant, and then follow them over a period of time to see what happens to their children, see if there's any effects. So in terms of the human um, story, that's the level we see it. But having fish and having other organisms at a lower trophic level gives us an indication that this is something that we should start worrying about, we should start being um, concerned about. So you will find that a lot of contaminants will give that same effect on fish. We can't say it's one type of contaminant, but just generally the class of endocrine disrupting compounds will do that. I mean, that seems to me that problems might be different, but a good way of tackling them is early action, you know. Acting early is always less Mm -hmm. costly than trying to deal with the problem after it becomes a problem. But it seems that it's never sexy. It's never interesting. No one wants to deal with what might happen. You know, the the heroism is in the kind of, oh, there's a problem. I'm going to tackle it. I'm going to fight the serpent, you know, that kind of thing. As opposed to, well, I'm going to be measured. I'm going to go out and monitor things. I'm going to find out if this could be a risk. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be precautionary. And I'm actually going to be a hero by avoiding a future problem. But like trying to explain what would have happened (laughs) and, and trying to get credit for that is is very hard something to do with us humans wanting to dominate the world i think but maybe that's for another episode and i also wanted to know because in us the african experience has also been sometimes the silos with which our departments work you know so you find that department of health is not necessarily really tied in with department of environmental affairs the linkage has to be very strong you know and i think the covid19 story really speaks to that 
thanks for raising that point, because I think that gets to the very nub of what Join the Dots is all about. It's trying to break down the silos between these different topic areas so that what happens in one place is recognised as having implications in another place. And I think that also brings back to us what we as consumers ought to be thinking about, that the products we buy, the impact on the environment or even on ourselves has not always been tested fully. Sometimes it's only after something is perhaps be a problem that it is addressed. So for individuals, what kind of recommendations would you make when we shop for these products? So for me, the personal choices in terms of our shopping, I think that's really important. But also in terms of supporting businesses who are very genuine in laying bare how they are being conscious about what they produce and how it affects the environment. Also being vocal. I think here in South Africa, we've seen a lot of changes happen because of people being vocal to say, you know, this is best practice right now in terms of environmental sustainability, in terms of making sure that our water is safe. What are you as a company doing about that? There are opportunities in our workspaces, I think, to also bring those discussions to the forefront. Sometimes in our workspaces, we think more about what our work environment is doing for us. But I think it's also the opportunity as workers or as people of the labor force to also hold our companies accountable you know, once once we've taken it on as individuals, there's a lot of opportunity to do that. Yeah. Here in South Africa, we do, and I'm sure it's the same in the UK, we have processes where we gazette certain things. So it will be up for comment. They would say, for instance, you know, comment on this bill that we're thinking about passing. You know, do we actually take time to look at those kinds of things? Public consultation here. Yeah. Yes, public mm-hmm. consultations. You know, if there's no pressure, things are not going to change. Lawmakers will think, well, the public is okay with it. As AJ said, we should preempt the future. So once we know better, we should start saying, no, we're not okay with this. Because environmental health ultimately comes back to human health. It will affect us somehow. You can't run away from it. We're going to become all activists (laughs) through this podcast. I I love that. I love that spirit. (laughs) So when we talk about personal choice, what I found in researching this episode There are a number of chemicals. I mean, you'll see links in our webpage to a dirty dozen nanoparticles are also there in almost every popular commercial product you can buy. So you you really need to engage in doing research. And as you say, we need to push not just the government, but the manufacturers. But also we need to think about buying products without these chemicals. It It requires a lot of research sometimes because there's a lot of green haloing where Mm. products use one or two natural ingredients. But then if you look down, they still have the parabens, they still have the preservatives and dyes. You can consider making your own products. Mm. But even when you are using these problematic products, one of the big issues is using less. Less, Only use as much shampoo or lotion as you need. A lot of things are habit rather than need. Mm-hmm. So simple stuff that together will add to a lot of positive impact, hopefully. Jill, over to you for a summary. We've lifted the lid in Down the Drain on a huge topic. We have talked about what goes around comes around. Anything that we put on our bodies or ingest will, one way or another, get into the water cycle and we are likely to find it coming back at us. One of the things that we've learned is that, strangely, we don't have a lot of knowledge about what those environmental and personal implications might be. 
historically we've not measured things or worked out what to do with them until they've become a problem. We might think that reputable big companies, multinationals have tested their products and their impact on the environment thoroughly, but that's not always the case. They may have done it in the broadest way in line with regulation. And what we don't know is how those new compounds act together in the environment and what impact they're having on the environmental well-being as well as on our well-being. So as consumers, we need to be much more conscious about the choices we make and think about reducing the amount of things that we are taking, whether they're unnecessary medicines, let's save them for the things that we really need when they will be most effective, about the chemicals that we use for, for cleaning ourselves or making ourselves feel good, Let's think about them maybe more as a treat rather than as an everyday product, because everything that we use will end up going down the drain and coming back and having an impact either on the fish that we eat or the, the microbes that keep the water clean or on our own systems themselves directly. So better to be cautious rather than profligate. And we've developed these things as luxuries and we've been sold them and marketed them, but let's actually take a bit more control of what we're doing and think about this a bit more carefully. This is such a big topic, we haven't been able to cover everything today, but I think there is some important advice on our website that will help you make choices. I hope the discussion today has made you think about what you do, and as I said, we're going to be coming back to it in our next episode. Thank you, Eunice. Thank you. And we look forward to welcoming you back next time. Thanks for listening. And thanks to the rest of the team, Tara Uyghur on podcast production and Neil McEwen on sound and music. If you enjoyed this, look out for our upcoming episodes and all other info on our website, jointhedotspodcast.com. Thank you.